This morning we begin a new series called On the Road with Jesus. And it's a journey through the entire gospel of Mark. And, and, if, I can, and if I can just be a little direct, uh, there is a sense of when you're gathering as a church plant or as a, as a new church, there, there is a sense of, oh, we're just going to wait and see. We're just going to see how this goes. And, you know, maybe the commitment comes, maybe it doesn't. And, and I said all throughout January that, that I am aware that we're all in different places. We're all in, in just different frames of minds. Our hearts are in different places. I mean, coming out of what last year was, everyone is just in a different place. But we, but we named the series On the Road with Jesus in the hopes that as we study Mark together, that all of us would be meeting in this place to begin this trip together. But as all of us, as a group of people coming from different places together, we're not just doing it alone. We're doing it with Jesus. And this is important for three reasons. Number one, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us, right? It's not about what you want out of everyone else in this trip. It's, it's not about where you want to go with Jesus. We're all here on this journey together with Jesus because he brought us here and he has made this trip for us. The second thing is, is that we're not together tolerating each other. We're not tolerating the vehicle that is Mark's gospel as we're going to Jesus. No. We are together with Jesus, and he will make the path straight for us. And lastly, if you've ever taken a road trip with someone, or if you've ever taken a a road trip with a group of people, then you know this is intimate. It's we're in each other's space. We're we're in each other's business. We're, We're in this thing together, and it's awkward. It's sort of uncomfortable. I don't want you close to me. That person forgot to take a shower but whatever, but we're in this thing together, we're intimate. This is not what this is. If I could just drive this illustration even further. It's not that I'm in the car with my family, with Jesus going down the road, and, you know, Richard and Stephanie are in their car with Jesus next to us going down this road, and, you know, you're in this car next to us going with Jesus down the road. No, we are all in this mug together. We are in this big old sanctified greyhound together with Jesus going down the road. So there's that. All right. Now, why Mark? That's easy. Why not? (laughs) Uh, Mark is the smaller gospel between Matthew and Luke. And compared uh, to John in its language, it's not as spiritually deep. However, Mark is the oldest gospel we have. By wide accounts, we see that Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels using Mark's language. And we'll see that more clearly when we make reference to them throughout our course of study. But make no mistake, family, this book too is the inspired word of God. It is, in a sense, uh, Christ's account of himself, which is to say that when we read this book and hear it read to us, We are encountering Jesus intimately. And as history would show you, there is change 
change when Jesus meets you. When you meet the living God of the Bible family, you cannot be the same. Can't you testify to that? Four men casting their fishing nets into the sea like any other day of the week. And Jesus comes up and says, I'll make you more than fishermen. I'll make you fishers of men. And these boys dropped their nets, left their own family hanging, and they followed this stranger who just rolled up onto him and said, you're catching fish. I'll show you how to catch people. They left everything to go die and be martyrs. Oh, see, when you meet Jesus, you cannot be the same. When Saul was still threatening to murder any disciple of Jesus he could come across. He was on his way to the city of Damascus to bring this false sense of justice to Christians. And Christ cut him off and blinded him, made him reliant upon the very priests he came to persecute. He was changed by that encounter. Church, when you meet Jesus, you cannot be the same. So I submit to you now a question, a question that I hope you would write down in the beginning of your scripture journals or in your own Bibles or somewhere memorable. I submit to you this. What will Jesus make of you on this journey? What will Jesus make of you? Or if you're writing this, what will Jesus make of me? Ask yourself this, when I read his words, when I hear them read over me, when I examine them closely in service, in my week, in groups, how will I change? How will Jesus change me? This morning we will be laying down the foundation of the rest of our months in this book by reading the very first verse of Mark. So let's read God's word. Let's pray and let's see what he has for us. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that we get to be here worshiping you this morning. That the weather didn't stop us. But instead what the weather did was remind us of your grace. That it covers everything. That there is not a spot around us that is not drenched with your love and your grace and your mercy. God, may that be on our minds as we come into this place. To worship you. May our minds be ready to receive you. God, we look to you for all of our help and comfort. Would you gift the hearers with attentiveness, grace for my errors? Would you give me with clarity of speech and thought as I tried to proclaim your name and make your son famous? In his name we pray. Amen. One of the great joys of being a father is when your children become fascinated with something that you were fascinated with as a child, right? We've experienced this multiple times in my home, but one time that comes to mind is a toy line and and cartoon called Transformers. It's uh, the whole idea of the show and these uh, toys 
is that they are vehicles and animals turned into robot soldiers. The catchphrase is, more than meets the eye. That's a perfect one too, right? More than meets the eye. You would, you would see this toy that looks like a sports car, but underneath it, really, there is something more to it than meets the eye. It's actually a robot soldier. And this verse is something like that neat little catchphrase. There is more to it than meets the eye. There is depth of richness in this sentence that at first glance we cannot see. We see here, just looking at it, that there's 12 words, no verbs, no call to action, nothing really to take with us. We just read it right there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. But what we're going to do this morning is highlight three portions of this sentence and expound this introduction to the oldest gospel we have. In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Son of God. Those are our three points. In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. So let's begin with the beginning, literally. Our Bible consists of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both parts equaling 66 books of inspired, true, authoritative word of God. The Old Testament is about two-thirds of the entire Bible. It's full of wonderful, incredible words broken into Five sections. There's law, history, poetry, major and minor prophets. In some ways, there's no succinct way to summarize all of it. Paradoxically, this is a way I think you can. I see the humor in that. Uh, But here it is. The Old Testament is the foretelling of a Messiah to come for God's people. If I could point you to the prophet Isaiah, if you're quick with your fingers, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 40. But if I could point you to the prophet Isaiah making this declaration and prophecy, starting in verse 9, he says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him he will tend his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lamb in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young this is a public announcement this is shouting that God's people will return to the promised land because it is there that the Messiah is to appear. And he will come to his people as a conquering king, as a generous benefactor and a gentle shepherd. Oh, church, put yourself in the Jews position. Imagine hearing when imagine hearing this when your faith was weary. Imagine for a second the exact opposite of your reality now. Instead of flourishing in this wonderful safety that we have in this country, imagine you are in exile. Imagine that not only are you in exile, but you're this exile who's, who's waiting every day of your lives as your parents did before you, as, their, as your grandparents did before you, and as their parents did before you on this promise this promise to come true. 
You have no timeline of when it's going to happen. You hope it's in your lifetime. You just know that one day this Messiah will come and make all things new. Imagine for a second that your physical reality of being in exile points you to your spiritual reality of being in exile. You have no home. You're barred from your true home and capable of bringing yourself to safety. You need a savior. You need someone to come and bring justice and mercy, not just here on earth, but in your heart, in your spirit. You're waiting for something, someone, and each day feels further and further away from that realization. And then imagine the swagger full prophet Isaiah standing before you in this great crowd and imagine these words of God spoken to you through his prophet or what water to your soul as you wander the desert. Behold, he comes with might. Behold, he comes mighty to compensate for your loss and he will tend to you his flock. He will carry you the lamb in his arms. Oh, what great news. Well, that's the Old Testament. Let's look to the New. The New Testament is the remaining third of the Bible, broken into four sections, the Gospels, Acts, Epistles, and Revelation. The New Testament, beginning with the Gospels, is such an important detail. It's such an important detail, just as Genesis Genesis is the beginning of the Old Testament. See, Genesis told the beginning of a garden, a small but intimate place where man traded God for sin. But the Gospels, the Gospels tell the beginning of man's rescue, of man's rescue to God's city where sin is crushed and death has no, ch- uh, no power where every child of his will be kept. Each gospel tells the story of Jesus. Each gospel giving long anticipation, satisfaction. The New Testament through the gospels tells us that Jesus is the promise confirmed, that Jesus is the covenant renewed, that Jesus is the prophecies fulfilled, the law vindicated, Salvation brought near. Family, I ask you again, what will the gospel of Mark make of you? It's interesting to compare Mark's introduction to the introduction of the other gospels. Mark doesn't begin with a genealogy or family tree like Matthew and Luke do. No, nor does he make a profoundly theologically dense purpose statement like John's introduction. Instead, Mark focuses On the beginning. How we got here. Mark is laser focused on proving that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the promised Messiah. That he is the son of God in the flesh. It gives us a window into the kind of person John Mark was. Mark was a young man. And probably like you, I know for sure for me, he had trouble in the faith early on. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. A close companion of Paul's, like that Paul, the the Paul who wrote like almost all the New Testament. But on Paul's first missionary journey, he gathered up some people. He said, we're going to go proclaim the gospel to the known world. 
Well, Paul's first missionary journey, Mark ghosted them. They were all packed up, ready to go on this dangerous, passionate mission to proclaim the gospel. And Mark disappears. And boy, he picked the right era to do that in. He couldn't find his iPhone. You couldn't call him. You couldn't get to him immediately to figure out where, yo, where you at? No, it was gone. And this really, really annoyed Paul. So much so that for the second missionary journey, Paul came back, said, I didn't hit all the places I wanted to hit. I got to go again. And Mark comes up. He's like, it's cool if I join you. And Paul was like, no. No. And that caused a, a riff, a beef between Paul and Barnabas, right? Barnabas was like, why you, why you can't let Mark come? I said, we can't trust him. So what happened was, is Paul and Silas went one way, and then Barnabas and Mark, they went another way. But Paul and Mark later reconciled, and Mark served as Paul's aide on a mission to Asia Minor, and then again served Timothy and Paul in Rome. And it was at Rome where he served as Peter's secretary. And they were very close. Peter says, Mark is like my son. And it's in this relationship with Peter that we can assume fueled the motivation to write Jesus' story many, many years after his death. See, Mark never heard Jesus speak. Mark never saw Jesus in action. But because Mark followed Paul and then followed Peter, he knew enough to accurately portray Jesus' ministry. That's a rebound, ain't it? What a recovery from failed disciple of Paul to writer of the first gospel and honored martyr. I don't know about you, but maybe you stumbled in your faith early on. Maybe you have something to be ashamed about while you were in the faith. Maybe you didn't represent the gospel that you believe quite good and you felt great shame. I know I have. There have been many moments early in my faith where I was just shameful. Oh, but God can make a broken man useful. Look at Mark's life and see that when he encountered Jesus, even as a failed follower, nothing was the same. See, Mark failed Paul, but he didn't fail Peter. And Mark failed Jesus, but Jesus was perfect for Mark. And Mark was able to still serve him greatly. Mark wrote this gospel in Rome to help people from every background understand that the coming of of Jesus was the climax of God's work for the world. Picture this. Peter had just died. Crucified upside down, very publicly. The church is being persecuted by the infamous emperor Nero. I mean, this guy was bad news. He sought to kill the church in Rome, literally. But he didn't know who he was messing with. You can't kill God's plan. See, the church didn't meet in public anymore. Nero thought his conquest was successful, but the church lived right under his nose. The church gathered and worshiped in the catacombs. Christians worshiping in underground cemeteries. Worshiping God. Mark is writing to them. 
Christians who are being butchered in the street for their faith, Mark is writing to them. Christians who are suffering, hurting, visibly losing more than they are gaining, Mark is writing to them. And now what you have in your hands is a letter that made its way from the catacombs in Rome to a street off Palm Bay Road. Family, Mark is writing to you. But the question needs to be asked, what is Mark communicating to me? What does he want me to know? He wants you to know the gospel. Let me make my case. The first verse is a call to Old Testament hearers and readers by communicating in a way they understand. By speaking to them in a language knowable immediately to someone steeped in Old Testament language. When Mark says in the beginning, he's referencing Genesis, calling them to remember that at creation, someone of the Trinity was doing the creating. Someone was speaking into existence all that we have on the air and on the ground. He's calling them to remember God providing Adam and Eve clothing from which an animal was sacrificed for their sin. He's calling them to remember the ark, a savior from the judgment of God. He's calling them to remember a ram provided to Abraham instead of his son. He's calling them to remember Leah's marriage, though her husband didn't want her, God did, and the Messiah would come from her line. He's calling them to remember Joseph, a forgiving prince who would forgive those who had, who had sinned against him, telling them that there's a forgiving king coming. So when Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel, oh, these readers made connections. These readers recognized the wordplay. They were to remember. But the word gospel is interesting, isn't it? What is a gospel? Well, the gospel means good news. And we all know good news. Some of you have been in doctor's offices and received good news. Some of you have heard the good news of pregnancies. Some of you have heard the good news of adoption. You've been adopted and you have adopted. Some of you know very intimately and very deeply the power of good news. But Mark is calling them to remember not just any old news. Not just any news that they found good. No, he didn't want them to remember a gospel. He wanted to remember the gospel. Mark is not asking them to remember that this is the beginning of his gospel, though it is certainly the beginning of his writing. He means the gospel of Jesus Christ. Family, the gospel that Mark wants you to receive, you who are looking at me right now, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this isn't just any old good news. It's the news. Mark is telling us this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the beginning of what he did, the beginning of his life and ministry, his perfect obedience, his atoning death for the elect, his resurrection from the dead, and the Spirit's descent on the church. This is the news of Jesus Christ. Mark has a very particular lens in which he portrays Jesus to the readers. He wants you to see Jesus as a savior and as a servant. Almost every commentator agrees that the key verse of Mark is in the 45th verse of the 10th chapter. If you're a highlighter, if you're a writer, 
Go ahead and turn to Mark 1045 in your scripture journals and make sure that this is known to you 10 years from now. That if you forget anything in this book, you don't forget this. Mark 10.45 reads, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Mark is saying is that Jesus came not to be served. He didn't come through a wealthy, rich family. He came through a poor virgin woman. He didn't come in a palace that befits his kingliness. No, he came in a manger. He didn't come to the high praise of the people. No, he was hunted. There was a bounty on his head. He wasn't praised by the people around him. Instead, he was forced to flee after a decree to kill all the infant boys was made. He came not to be served. He is the servant and the savior, and he served us by laying down his life for us. Imagine, family, now the Christians reading this letter in the catacombs under the light of the candle, gathered together, faith flickering like the flame in there with them. They are weary. They are wondering. They are learned in the Old Testament scriptures. They are waiting. They are longing. Then reading this, that Jesus is sacred history reaching a climax, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, that Jesus is the acceptable offering that Jesus is the great priest over the household of God sitting at the right hand of God that he is the greater Moses the greater David the kingdom of God inaugurated the ancient of days the great and the great servant of the Lord who was sentenced to death for his people's transgressions and bore the sin for many Jesus has accomplished God's mission and is in the book of Mark and in our lives exalted and high above all family this is for you this is the Jesus Mark is pointing us to this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the real good news and Paul Paul oh Paul at the same time At the same time that Mark is writing and delivering this letter, Paul is also writing these very words. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Family, this is no ordinary good news. This is no throwaway message. This is the power of God unto salvation. What will the gospel of Jesus Christ make of you? Our third part. The final portion of his opening line. Jesus Christ, son of God. This is not just a name of Jesus, but a title. And an important title in a few ways. I want to highlight the contextual significance and its actual meaning, its reality for us. Contextually, self-deification is on the theme of great leaders' lips at that time. Most notably, think of Alexander the Great. We remember him, what, almost 3,000 years after he lived. This was only 300 years after him. But Alexander the Great, the Greek conqueror, had already declared himself 
a great descendant of the demigod Heracles. But such is the way of men to not be satisfied. And in a pursuit of self-glorification, when an oracle declared him to be the son of Zeus, he immediately adopted the moniker and declared himself with great reception from the known world, a deity. And not just any deity. He was the son of the great deity. He was the, the son of the God of gods to the Greeks. He was the son of Zeus. Even Egyptians called Alexander the Great the son of Ra, which is the son of all the Egyptian gods, or the God of gods. But Alexander was no god. He died of a fever. An infection his supposed godlike body could not handle. Oh, Alexander felt the fragility of the human frame, but his self-deification is great history to the Gentiles living in this time. The Romans, when they encountered Jesus, took this title, Son of God, incredibly personal. And John's gospel, even in records, even records, sorry, a time when in his trial, they demanded that he answer for that title. Son of God, prove it. King of the Jews, show me. As the Roman soldiers would see, in contrast to Alexander, Jesus' body didn't fail. And quite the opposite, he lasted. And he didn't just last, he conquered death. Jesus died only until death died. See, Jesus, the actual son, Jesus is the actual son of the real God. In his deity, conquered more than any living conqueror had. Mark's language ear here is, hey, you remember all those men who called themselves God and died pitiful deaths. Why, I'm telling you of the real God. The one who was persecuted like you but did not hide. He faced his trials for you. He faced his punishments for you and he faced death for you so that death has no power over you. I'm telling you about that God, Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is the beginning of the good news of God in the flesh. Family, the reality of this, that Jesus is the son of God, has meaning for us now as it did the catacomb church. Mark is communicating that Jesus was not just a man. He's God. Mark is making very clear to us now at the very beginning that Jesus is the divine eternal son. In some ways, what Mark is doing is recalling Paul's teachings in Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2.6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Mark wants to make that very clear to us. And family, I'll make this very clear to you. That we are on the road with not just a man. But God, not just a servant, but Savior. He is God in the flesh, a person of the beautiful Trinity. Jesus' deity didn't begin at his birth. Well, look at the language. Paul is calling us to remember something before us, before time, Call, calling us to remember that Jesus was God before his birthday. How else could he be a Savior? Mark is communicating to us that this is an essential fact of our faith. 
that you cannot be saved if you do not believe that Jesus is Lord. You cannot receive salvation. You cannot be married to him in baptism. You cannot take his meal and remember his sacrifice without believing that he was Lord. There is Lord. Mark is making clear what Paul confesses at his conversion. Go to Acts 9. It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house. Starting at 17, sorry. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, on Saul, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was at the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Family, Mark is saying to you, I bring you good news. Jesus is Lord. I'll bring you good news. Jesus is Lord. Family, what will Jesus, the son of God, make of you? What will Jesus, the son of God, make of you? 